episode number 76. Because the person tricks themselves. They justify it to themselves that I'm going to do this thing for a mitzvah. But really, the interest is, is the pleasure itself. But for the good cause, of course. Welcome to the Torah Podcast. Lessons from authentic Judaism. Get the tools and inspiration you need for personal growth. Hosted by Rabbi Mitterhoff. Shalom, this is Rabbi Eliyahu Mitterhoff with this week's Torah Podcast. The Torah portion of the week is Bereshis, Justifying Our Desires, Matter Over Mind. We can have a powerful parable about the innkeeper in the soup, a great story about Rav Shach, and peace in your home, Shaduchim. And now, the Torah portion of the week, with novel ideas from the classic commentaries. So the verses in Bereshi said like this, The last Pusik in chapter 2 says, They were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. And verse 4 in chapter 3 continues and says, The serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like a God, knowing good and bad. And the woman saw that the tree was good for eating, and that it was a passion for the eyes, and that the tree was desirable for awareness. And she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed together a fig leaf and made themselves clothes. So this is the story of the first sin. And from here we can learn the foundations of all sins. We can learn how sin works. So the Sforno says like this, What did it mean that they were naked and they weren't embarrassed? So he explains, At that time, all their organs, limbs, and actions were used for the purpose of fulfilling God's will exclusively, not to attain physical pleasure at all. Consequently, the act of sexuality was to them as normal of that of eating and drinking. Therefore, the reproductive organs were regarded to them as regards the mouth, face, or hands. In other words, there's no difference between the hands and that part of the body. Why? Because everything was done for the will of God. So why did they have to be ashamed that they were naked? And it was only after that they sinned and they didn't listen to God. At that point, they became ashamed. So the Orachim explains like this. The fact that they were aware that they were naked does not refer to the fact that they were just missing clothing, but the removal of an oral of holiness which has served them this far in the lieu of clothing. In other words, it was their holiness that prevented them from being embarrassed. And he says the opposite. It is the characteristic of a wicked person that after he commits a sin, he becomes aware of how bad it was. So it was only after their sin, after they went down a level, after they did the wrong thing, at that point they became embarrassed. So the question is, what is this sense of embarrassment, of shame, that's built into man? that if he does the wrong thing, he starts to feel embarrassed. So if Shimshai and Raphael Hirsch explains, he says like this, Their eyes were opened, and they became enlightened, but their first realization was that they were naked. If a per- person perceives he is naked, it means he has realized that something is showing that should not be seen. This is the sense of shame, which we already indicated is the root of man's awareness of his true calling. As long as a man stands completely in the surface of God, he has no reason to be ashamed of the physical aspect of his being. Why? Because bodily aspirations too are wholly impure, as long as they are subordinated to the means to fulfill the will of God for holy purpose. But once his relationship is reversed, a person has to feel shame. A sense of shame 
precipitated by a voice of his conscience, stirs within him, reminding him that he must not be like an animal. As soon as a man submits to the rule of his baser instincts and does not endeavor to elevate sensuality into the realm of the holy, but on the contrary, Sensuality lowers man's holiness into the realm of the sensual. Instead of uplifting sexuality, he goes down to the level of sexuality. Then he becomes ashamed of his body's nakedness. Now listen to this. This feeling of shame is the faithful garden of morality. It's God's call to man who has forsaken his moral stature. The feeling of shame warns man to be and remain a master of his body so that he should ascend in freedom to the heights of his calling. So according to reverse, we see that this embarrassment is the spiritual compass to what we're here for. What's the purpose of our lives? This embarrassment is telling us that we're going in the wrong direction. Being embarrassed, being in shame is one of the most important feelings we could possibly have. It shows us that we're off. How else are we going to know we're off? And society tells us they're not to be ashamed of anything. The most disgusting things are out in the open. And they're telling us we should lose our shame. And the Nazis didn't want us to have any consciousness at all. Let's get rid of consciousness. Let's be free. Let's be democratic. Everything goes. You can run around naked in Times Square. What's the problem? What's the big deal? Pornography everywhere. Don't be embarrassed. But no, the Jews, we say no. This embarrassment is the most important feeling that we have. Because this is the only way we know if we're on the right track or not. We're Adaraba. We have to develop our embarrassment. We have to be more sensitive to our own shame. There's nothing wrong with shame. It's there to help us. And the mob says like this, Before the sin, the procreative organs were perceived just like any other part of the body, like we said. But afterwards, with a newfound tendency to seek pleasure for its own sake, they became aware of the potential of this desire had to pull them away from their elevated goals and what they aspired to. And this made them embarrassed enough to feel the need for clothing. When they started to seek pleasure for the sake of pleasure, they became embarrassed. Because that's not what the purpose of pleasure is for. Pleasure is an MCE. It's a means to get to a goal. It's not the purpose of life. We need pleasure because we're human beings. In order to go forward, in order to have energy, in order to do the right thing, we need to have a good, comfortable life. It says if you have a beautiful house and a beautiful wife, it gives revak das, it gives you an open mind. It gives you yeshuva das, makes you relax. But all this for what? Not for the thing itself. For the sake of serving God, for using all the pleasures that we have, that God gives us, we use them to serve Him. But if we take pleasure for itself, we become embarrassed. We should become embarrassed. If we're healthy, if we're spiritually healthy, we should become embarrassed. So the question now is, if we are healthy human beings and we become embarrassed when we sin, so why do we sin? We know we're going to be embarrassed. Why do we do the wrong thing when we know the consequences are not worth it? What's pushing us? How can we possibly do the wrong thing? There's no worse feeling than embarrassment. Chazal tells us that if you embarrass a person in public, you lose your next world. A person can lose his next world by embarrassing somebody. That's how bad it is. Why? Because it's like he killed somebody. He killed the person. A person doesn't want to be embarrassed. If you embarrass somebody by robbing him, it's like he killed him. So if we know that we're going to be embarrassed, we're going to have those feelings, why would we possibly sin? How could we possibly sin? Why isn't the embarrassment itself enough to stop us? So if Henrik Leibowitz brings this foreigner who explains like this, the Sforno says on the verse, You will not die, 
For God knows on that day when you eat, your eyes shall be open. So how did he try to convince Chava to eat from the tree? He told her that your eyes would be open. And what does that mean according to the Sforno? You will gain aid and knowledge as a result. You'll be like a divine being with perfect knowledge. You have intellectual perfection. And that's the approach that he took to convince Chava to eat from the Etzadas. That you will have intellectual perfection. But on the next verse, the Sforno explains, it says, The woman perceived that the tree was good for eating. He says, She perceived it was pleasant, sweet to eat, because of its nature, its place, the atmosphere, the aroma of the fruit. So the woman herself was attracted to the tree because of the pleasure that it would give her. So Rev. Leibowitz asked, wait a second, why did the Nachash, the snake, try to convince Chava with this spiritual thing, you're going to have unbelievable wisdom? He should have just used what she was, she was herself was attracted to the tree. Why didn't he just say to her, listen, this is delicious. It's unbelievable. You have to taste it. He could have won her over just by talking about the physical enjoyment that she would have got. Why does he have to talk philosophically? Well, you could have this wisdom and this knowledge. She herself was attracted to the tree. The answer is, is that would have not been enough to convince her. Because you know why? A person really is embarrassed. And because of embarrassment, a person will not sin. If he realizes he's going to be embarrassed, he won't sin. So what does the evil inclination do? He convinces the person with some kind of philosophical idea. He convinces her it's a mitzvah to do this thing. It's the right thing to do. He doesn't come with a frontal attack. Wow, this is unbelievable. You have to taste it. What pleasure it gives you. The <laughs> person hears that he's embarrassed. How can I go against God to get pleasure? That's embarrassing. But to do a mitzvah, oh, that'll do well. I'll have spirituality. I'll have das. I'll have wisdom. I'll have a divine knowledge. Oh, yeah, that, that I'm going to do it. I'm going to eat from that tree. But really, it's like a wolf in sheep's clothing. Why? Because the person tricks themselves. They justify it to themselves that I'm going to do this thing for a mitzvah. But really, the interest is, is the pleasure itself. But for the good cause, of course. Because subconsciously, you're really eating, doing these things for your own passions, for your own desires. Because really, that's what you want. But you can't admit to yourself that you're doing this for your own personal desires because that's embarrassing. Therefore, you have to make up a whole philosophy on why it's right. A Jewish person could decide he wants to save the whales. Why does he want to save the whales? Well, yeah, I'll tell you why. Because he doesn't want to sit in the base midges where he's supposed to be, learning Torah, working hard. No, he wants to be at the beach and go on expeditions and travel the world and do all these things. Why? For the good cause of saving the whales, of course. But that's not what he's supposed to be doing with his life. He has a higher calling than that. Every Jew has a higher calling than that. But he's convinced himself for this great cause of saving the whales, he's doing the biggest mitzvah that he could possibly do. And he's built the whole philosophy around it. But really, at the end of the day, he just wants to be a beach bum. He wants to go on boats and travel. Who knows what he wants to do? Rabbi Yisrael Salantis said that the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, will let you say to him all day. Just as long as you don't go to the base Midrash and learn Torah Be'in, in-depth learning with hard work. Ah, it's a mitzvah to say Tehillim. It's sure, surely it's a mitzvah to say Tehillim. But it's a less of a mitzvah. So the Yetzirah will trick you to do all these smaller mitzvahs. And maybe it's even a mitzvah to save the whales. But that's the trick of the Yetzirah. To get you to do the wrong thing instead of doing the right thing.
to get you to do the smaller thing instead of doing the bigger thing. And this is an unbelievable yesod, the foundation of all sin. This is why we sin. We justify to ourselves that it's the right thing to do. We convince ourselves with a whole philosophy, with a whole liberal outlook, that we have to save all these poor refugees, you know? That's what we have to do. That's what you're supposed to do with your life. Save Arab refugees. Well, it sounds like a very good cause, doesn't it? And it may be a good cause, but not for you. Because if you look deeper inside yourself, you see you have a higher calling. The whole goal is to get to your highest calling, to do a cheshbon and nefesh, to figure out in your own soul, what are you really supposed to be doing with your life? And everybody has the Yetzirah. Everybody has all these things pulling them in all these different directions, doing the smaller thing and missing the bigger thing. Like they say, the enemy of great is good. The Marvin brings the Pasuk in Mishle, he says, According to his mind, the person is praised. But if his heart goes astray, it will be put to shame. So the Mabim says, The heart here symbolizes the raw desires, unfiltered through the criticism of the mind. If he puts the mind in charge, he deserves praise for intellectual powers. But if he puts the heart in charge, then the mind itself is put to shame. A person will look back on his life after 120 years, what did I do? How embarrassing. I did the wrong thing. It was only because of my own desires. I put my desires before my intellect. And I justified to myself that this is the direction I should go in. And if you do that, then you'll be embarrassed in the end. That's exactly. Embarrassment itself is enough to stop a person. Embarrassment itself is understanding that you really did the wrong thing, that you really did sin, that you put your personal desires before serving God. That's embarrassing. The Ramchal says the same from Melitza like this. Listen. For once the will submits to its desires and is no longer drawn to things that it should be, then the tables are turned. And instead of following after the intellect, the intellect is drawn after the will. The intellect thereby loses its power of understanding, and the thinking process itself becomes corrupted. The person no longer forms a picture of things the way they are, but rather as his will would like them to be, on the account that it's subjugated to its desires. Things of great importance begin to take, be taken lightly and become unimportant in his eyes. And strong things appear to be weak and powerful forces seem insignificant. He remains unmoved by things he should rightly be unmoved by and unimpressed what would ordinarily make a strong and lasting impression. This is unbelievable. In other words, if the desires are in control, the intellect stops working. And that's how a person comes to sin. Because the intellect becomes a slave to the desires, not the opposite. When man was first created, before he sinned, his intellect was in charge and he wasn't embarrassed. Why was he not embarrassed? Because his desires were a slave to his intellect. In other words, he used all of his desires for eating and for drinking and for being together with his wife. But he did everything in the Shem Shemayim for the right reason, so he wasn't embarrassed. But when things switched... So then the intellect started to become a slave to the desires, to the will. And that's why, and that's what the Satan did. He convinced Chava with philosophical things, with liberalism and progressivism, all the great philosophies of helping people and doing chesed and kindness and doing everything for the right cause. When in the end, all those things are just a way to free a person up to go after his own desires. What's the philosophy of live and let live? 
<laughs> I want to do what I want to do. But if you say live and let live is a philosophical thing in the sense that I really care about other people, of course, and it's very important that everybody has freedom and liberty. But really, at the end of the day, what does it come down to? His own desires. He wants to be free. He wants to be liberal. He wants to do what he wants to do. So therefore, he makes a whole philosophy about helping people and caring about people and liberalism and freedom. I don't say, of course, these things are true. But for what reason? For his own personal desires? Of course, it has to be freedom and equal rights and do the right thing and help people in chesed. But it all has to be l'shem shemayim for the sake of God, not for his own personal desires. So the question now is, if this is how sin works, and this is what we're into, and we are completely absorbed by it, and every human being has it, he's being driven by his desires, it's all subconscious. He thinks he's doing the right thing for the good cause. But it's really his own desires, his own typhus, his own, his own thing. What does it have to do with God? So the question is, how do we get out of it? How do we escape this story? So if Desler has a solution, he says like this, After Adam descended from the world of the truth to the world of good and evil, in other words, he really had truth and he knew what the right thing to do is. But what happens? He dissented. He went into good and evil. Why good and evil? Yeah, we have all kind of story. Why this is good and why this is wrong and why this is right. But really, it's all, it has nothing to do with truth. Now his task is to pull himself up to a higher vantage point. By doing mitzvahs and learning Torah with great intensity, he can reach a higher level. The level of truth where evil has lost its attraction and truth prevails. The answer to this problem is truth. And that's probably what Rev. Dessler called his book, Strive for Truth. Because that's the goal. In other words, if we do a cheshbon and nefesh, we really check out why we're doing these things. What's pushing us? What's the truth? Why do we want that job? Why do we want to live in, in America? Why do we want to go over there? Why? Why? What's the truth? What's the real motivating factors inside of our inner being and in our kishkas? And that's the thing that's going to save a person from sin. And that's why Torah, Torah, Tavlin, the Torah itself is the antidote to sin. Because the Torah is truth. And by learning Torah, we learn to live truth. And we're involved in learning Gemara back and forth to see what is the truth, to understand the truth. To build up our intellect, to be able to see through, to penetrate deeper, to see our true motivation and our true desires and where we're coming from. And that's what it says. Torah leads to zeros. If you learn Torah, you'll come to watchfulness. You'll come to watch yourself. And that's what it says in the Path of the Just of the Ramchal. It says, in summation, a person must always, in a designated time, so he's by himself, reflect upon the true path that a person must follow in accordance with the laws of the Torah. And afterwards, he's reflect upon his deeds. Do they conform to this path or not? For in this manner, it will certainly be easier for him to purify himself from all wrongdoing and to rectify his ways, as it says, align the course of your feet, and thereby all your ways will be corrected. And also it says in Eicha, let us seek out our ways and examine them and return to the eternal. So the solution to sin is truth. Truth is the only thing that's going to pull you out of sin. Of course, we're too embarrassed to go directly for our own desires. We can't handle intellectually. We get embarrassed. It's embarrassing to be self-centered and egotistical. It's embarrassing. And therefore, we have to make up a whole philosophy on why it's the right thing to do. 
So the only way out of that, and, and that's why we sin. So the only way out of that is truth. We have to be intellectually honest with ourselves. We have to look really to see why are we doing, what are we doing, what's our deeper motivation. And we don't want to wait for another 100 years for it to happen. We have to do it now. We don't want to wait to oi ayom adin, oi, to the day of judgment, oi liyom atokhacha, to the day of rebuke, because we're going to be rebuked, because we were rationalizing why we're doing everything. But in the end, we're going to see we were wrong. We didn't do it for the right reasons. We're not living the right life. So with this new foundation, we can go forward and really do a spiritual accounting to find the right way back to a true path that we should be living to reach our greatest potential. Here is a powerful parable. Open your mind and help you reach your potential. So the Magid brings a mushal like this. The verse said, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field. So one time there was an innkeeper who cooked meals for all the visitors that came to her inn. And her food was so good that also the local village people used to come to eat by her also. Her food was simple and filling, and the price was very reasonable. But what happened? One day, she made a large pot of stew, and it was coming towards dinner time. She opens up the top of the pot, and she smells it, and it smells bad. She realized that the vegetables went bad inside the soup. But dinner was coming, so what she was going to do? So you know what she did? She took some very strong spices with a strong smell and sprinkled them into the steaming pot. So it changed the smell of the soup. So when the laborers came down to sit, to eat, they said, Wow, the stew is excellent today. It smells like God, ain't it? But another person sitting there said, No, you're wrong. This dish is completely spoiled. And what you smell are the spices covering up the spoiled odor. So that was the Masha. What's the Nimshal? So to the Yitzhahara tries to pursue the person's sin. The soul itself can smell this is bad news. But the Yitzhahara, the evil inclination, tries to wrap the sin in all kinds of persuasions and temptations to cover up the bad smell. And the worse the smell is, the more the Yitzhahara tries to cover it up. It's time for Great Stories About Great Rabbis. So the verse of Bereshi says like this, Cain spoke with his brother Hevel. And it happened when they were in the field that Cain rose up against his brother Hevel and killed him. So the question is, what was Cain speaking about with his brother Hevel? So one time in the Panovich Yeshiva, of Shach's Yeshiva, all of a sudden there was a lot of new students. And there was no room for them. And they were sitting in the hallways and they were taking up all the benches. It was very, very crowded. So one of the boys said, why don't we bring benches into, more benches into the base midrash? But the old students said, no way, there's already no room here. And there started to be of conflict in the yeshiva. So when Shach spoke to the yeshiva, he said like this, What does the Midrash say that Cain was speaking with Hevel before he killed him? One opinion said they were deciding to divide the goods of the world. Hevel would get all the movable property, while Cain would get all the real property, all the land. So they would start to fight. Your, he says, listen, I get all, all your clothes belong to me. Give me your clothes. He says, yeah, but the land you're standing on belongs to me. Start flying. What happened? He rose up and killed them. That's one midrash. But the other midrash says, no, they agreed to split all the movable stuff and all the land. And they were fighting on whose land is the temple going to be. So Rav Shach explained, when it comes to midrashic explanations, they're not mutually exclusive. Both the arguments could have been happening at the same time. So here you see boys come, new boys came to the yeshiva. 
And they want to come to the base Midrash. And they're coming for a good reason. But that same dispute could come to the fact is, hey, you get out of here. Give me your clothes. Or you have to jump. You have to fly in the air. And you come to reject them completely. So he said, who here is willing to play the role of Cain and fight these boys? They're coming to learn. And after that, the fight stopped. Learn to give, love, and communicate. This is Peace in Your Home. So if Moshe Aaron Stern speaks on Shadduchim, now some of these ideas are a little bit foreign, and if you're not a Ben Torah, it's hard to understand a little bit, even if you are a Ben Torah. He's talking about the first meeting. Since the first meeting between a boy and a girl when they're about to get married is very important, the first Shidduch. The Nesiv says on the verse, where Rivka saw Yitzchak and she fell off the camel, that was because she saw him as a malach. She saw him as an angel. Even to the point where years later she had her opinion about Esav and Yaakov, but she held it to herself because she was scared of Yitzchak. So everything follows from the beginning. We know the Torah commands to give the first fruits, because a good start makes all the difference. And every day and night starts with Krishna. Why? Because it's beginning. Everything goes according to the beginning. So in your first meeting, when a boy meets a girl, he has to tell her what his goals are. There can't be any deception. Can't be any tricks. Because even though a girl in Beis Yaakov, she knows she should marry a Ben Torah, a guy who sits and learns all day, but maybe her heart's not really there. She's just going along with it. So this has to be discussed. And he has to tell her what it means to be a Ben Torah, a person who sits and learns Torah all his life, and the difficulties that it entails. And things have to be clear up front. He says, even after the wedding, an Avraik has to show his wife what the purpose of life is. He says, I see boys after Sheva Brachas, schlepping around with all their gifts, returning them to stores to try to exchange them. The boys should have gone to the base of Midrash. Okay, maybe not full time, obviously, Rishana Rishana. But he should get up in the morning, go to the base of Midrash. He has to show his wife that studying is the most important thing in his life. And even his wife doesn't want him around. He says, like a fifth wheel. He's all time at home trying to help her. What a bad chassid he is. Helping her. But his wife actually wants her to go to the base midrash. Or they spend the first month going to relatives. Every night they're going to a different relative. And it goes out for a month. So he says, it's a shanari shon. It says the first year, not the first month. You're not supposed to do every day of the first month to go to another relative. It's ridiculous. If the man brings spirituality to the house from the very beginning, it will continue the entire marriage. The tone has to be set right. Also, you have to understand that a Jewish marriage is not like marriage in the world. The love comes afterwards. The love doesn't have to come before. Obviously, there has to be some attraction. But you can't fool yourself and be in a fantasy. You're in love. You're in love. The love comes after time. The verse says, Yitzchak brought her into the tent of Sarah's mother, and he took Rivka to him as a wife. And only afterwards does it say, and he loved her. First they got together, and afterwards he loved her. The main thing is good character, that she comes from a good family. But all this love that the world pushes is purely based on imagination. It brings a riot from Derek Arizutra that says, If you want to cleave to your friend with love, constantly seek what is good for him. In other words, it's the giving that creates a love. It's not because you love, you give, because you give, you love. That's why Rav Dastu explains, Ava, the Hav, which in Aramaic means to give. Love comes from giving. And that's the proper Jewish approach to Shaduchim. She has good meters, good character. She looks nice. You're attracted. That's all it takes. And he also says, even after the engagement, you have to be very careful. 
Rav Shlomo Zalman Orbach used to say he would stop all meetings after the engagement if he could. Because after the engagement, he says nothing but trouble. Going out to dinner, you wind up in all the situations that are not sneers, that are not modest, because you really can't touch each other, you're not married yet. And you're going out with this girl, what are you doing there with her? He says it's not only unnecessary, but it's downright dangerous. He says, no kedusha or tahara, holiness and purity will not result from these meetings. So even though these concepts are foreign to the modern world, but this is the Torah way. This is the right way that Shadukim should go. Okay, that's it for this week's Torah podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Please share with your friends and please leave comments. Thank you for listening. To get more enthusiasm for your Judaism, become a free member at globalyeshiva.com.